Yes. <laughs> they just like to slide in when everybody least expects it. That's right. Brainstorming yeah. all these witty jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fine. It gives me time to let this coffee kick in. I kick uh, I I indulged a little too much last night. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, but like part of it was I was just having such a good day working in the snake room. And then we Rachel got home from work and sh- she just needed to go out. So we went out and got a couple of drinks and then came back and had some more. And I, I lost count. And I woke up and I was like, that was too many for sure. So, <laughs> but uh, welcome to all our audience members. This yeah, is welcome. The, uh, the not famous infamous carpets and coffee <laughs> uh, yeah i'm breathing i'm, I'm alive um yeah. yeah yeah you you were grabbed by the asthma monster last week Ooh, yeah that was a rough one man I, I went and got tested for covid because i was so exhausted and i was i couldn't breathe i just no matter what i did i couldn't breathe and i'm like oh my god i must have covid but Thanks. nope just yeah asthma. so glad you didn't i had yeah. to get tested. A couple days ago, too, I just like got like a super bad sore throat and I was freaking out. But right, no COVID, double negatives. So, weird. Yeah. <laughs> <I was freaking. laughs> nice. Yeah, I get the shot sometime next week, I think. So, mm. yeah, Rachel uh, is getting her first one on Thursday. Nice. Mm. Yeah. So, the future is here. <laughs> yep. It's disturbing how many uh, Ish has got a dis- a quick rant. His disturbing Aaron. on how many people. I I sympathize with that one. Don't understand genus and species. Wow. Yes, this is true. Yeah, I mean it. It, it it's very important. Some people, uh, when they first hear about it, might think it's just extra classification that's not worth knowing. But it is very important, especially when somebody's talking about breeding because you when you're talking about breeding you need to make sure you're doing the responsible thing by that species yes yeah and that's where like that's just the the real simple nuts and bolts of it beyond that it's cool to know all the different you know relationships of everything and fully understand animals that's where the taxonomical relationships are Mm -hmm. important i think uh you know so I'm just going to give uh, you guys kind of know already, but uh, on tomorrow when uh, NPR comes out, we talked to uh, Dr. Zach Lofman and uh, we were talking about snake digestion. And, um, you know, I think when I asked the question, I asked it like, so let's talk about snake digestion. And he's sort of like, well, there's 2,700 different species of snakes. So how do we break this down? You know, like, uh <laughs> And it was interesting because he sort of tied it in on like how uh, cool snakes are on the inside and like how they've evolved to do certain things that they um, have, you know, have adapted to do in the wild uh, so that they can survive. But, um, you know, it's just, man, I don't know. It's, it's really cool when you start to look at that and understanding the relationship between different species and genus. And, you know, I don't know. I mm-hmm. I geek out on that stuff, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's important for other reasons too. I mean, there's certain, there's certain groups of animals within a a genus that maybe one of them and they, they can look alike, right? There's a specific example of this that I'm, I don't remember the exact species, but you can have two species in the same genus that look alike, but maybe one 
is like a CITES listed species and the other one isn't. And if you don't know which one you got at that point and you're importing, mm -hmm. I was just watching, sorry, bad way of saying it. I was watching the new Animals at Home <laughs> podcast and he had right. a, uh, somebody who is a professional importer on and she was discussing this. So right. it, if, you, if you know you have the right genus, but you don't know that you have the right species and they look the same, one will get you in jail. The other one, you're in the clear. So it's very important. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, it matters for sure. Oh. Speaking of genus, species, and understanding Latin names, we have the uh, the king of critical thinking. <laughs> Nipper <laughs> Reed here. If you say that. if you say Latin names wrong, you can expect this man to come after you. You're gonna get judged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And heaven forbid you say niche wrong because that lowers lowers the population rate one hooker at a time. <laughs> well, I might have to <clears throat> wait a minute. I just saw what Ish put up. I, I think I might have to agree. Well, I'm not going to say it's so rude that, you know, <laughs> um, you should do some research. But Bradley is a full species and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. coastals are not. Um, so Bradley is actually a sister species to the carpet pythons. So therefore, yes, it would be a true hybrid. Yes. And in the newest, um, Australian reptiles, um, book, they, uh, elevated, uh, both Imbricata and Bradley to full species status. So. Bradley already had full species. Yeah, but in in some literature in um, Australia, they mm. they classified it as um, Spilota. Spilota. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know everybody wasn't on board with that. My bad. Yeah. It's one of those ones where everyone should have been on board, but just gotcha. for absolutely yeah. no reason, certain yeah. folks decided. Looks like a carpet python. Must be a carpet python. <laughs> sure, sure. Amateurs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Nipper, how are you doing? Yeah, hey, man. How, 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 how are you? How is everybody? Excellent. Excellent. Got a lot of got a lot of coffee that going. Coffee is a French press and a half. Yes, sir. <laughs> I got my coffee from Papua New Guinea. Uh, never. Ooh. It's a Papua New Guinea coffee. That's Ooh. cool. Well, <laughs> I Papua drink tea. Tea. <laughs> oh, it says Nipper on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm tea. Tea. What, what kind of? Just straight tea? No Just milk, no sugar? Straight tea. Nice. It's pure and lovely. Why would you pollute it with anything? That's right. <laughs> Truth. Just um, like coffee. Why pollute it? Well, uh, <laughs> I guess before we get into it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Nipper, I got my other book. You're probably not going to like this, but this is the guide to Central American snakes. Oh, no. I'm, I've gone on a real king snake rabbit hole. I'm obsessed. So now Central America is good. Oh no, no, no. I'm sorry. Central North America. Like oh, Central, even better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, there can't be a North American book that I haven't got now, surely. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um man, there's so many species we got here. Uh -oh. at, at some point this this might have to happen. We might have to do some <laughs> we might have to do a thing. And we'll keep we'll keep a tally and, and oh, first one to first one to lose gets uh gets stingy leg slaps. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> uh, 
you got something lined up or what? What are we? Uh, what are we? Well, gonna, you want me to open a book and try to find a name and see who can pronounce it or what? Yeah, I mean, we could all. Well, first of all, we I don't know how many uh, of our audience don't know Nipper. If they don't, Nipper, would you like to go through the collection you maintain currently and uh, and yeah, sure. feel free to throw the Latin out there and really blow uh-huh. minds. If you care to. Well, okay. Um, if I can remember, um, I promised myself when I moved recently, or a couple of years ago, I promised myself I would keep less snakes, but I enjoy keeping them more. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I keep listening to people's podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I keep describing how great it is to keep such and such species and so on, and how nice it is to see American species when you're out herping. So my idea of keeping 30 snakes has now reached 70 snakes. Yep. And I have, yes, <laughs> and I have as soon as lockdown, I, I know it's slightly different for you guys, but lockdown is really strict here. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as lockdown's finished and we can get to some shows and things like that, I have a list of about another 30 species that I definitely <laughs> And they're all North American. <laughs> yes. Um, Something that you, I don't know, I don't know if you've got an agenda, but something I, I mm-hmm. might talk about uh, later on is um, I really, I've always mostly kept Asian species mm. or African species, mm-hmm. but now I really want to completely redo my snake building, start from scratch. And it's pretty much with one or two um, that I will be keeping from Asia and Africa, but pretty much it's going to be North American species. Um, and wow. we'll have maybe a little chat about that later. But yeah, you want to awesome. got, so I'll do my best to remember. Um, I have uh, Atherus Broadleyi, mm. Atherus Nietzscheyi, mm-hmm. Atherus Squamigera, Atherus Clarechis, Cistruris mm. uh, Miliaris Barbarae. Uh, do you want me to do these common names as well? <laughs> nah, leave people in the dark. They can learn. Yeah. This is how we teach them. Yes. Okay. Riley, uh, do you actually know what these are? I do. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have Cistruris miliaris streckery. Um, what else we got? I'm trying to work my way around the room in my mind. Um, I have Boiga flavorsens. Um, above that. I have Boiga nigriceps. I have uh, adult. Pair Hog Island Boas, absolutely yeah. stunning, really Those nice. Killer. Uh, I have Maclots, Water Pythons, or Water Pythons, as Eric would say. <laughs> Weirder. Uh, Water. 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 <laughs> uh, way, way too many North American pine snakes. <laughs> nice. I have. Rosy Boas, Pyramelana, Noblocki. Yep. Um, What else? What else? I have Jamaican Boas. Those are beautiful. My favorite. Your favorite, mate. I've I've only got got nine, but um, (laughs) they're like the they're like the the boa equivalent of Bradley as far as their 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 look and the color change from black to yeah. Yeah. And I love, Oh oh my goodness. 
Those they are, are such an underrated species. They stay really slim. They're almost mm -hmm. scrub-like. Mm -hmm. Heads are really angular. Yeah. Um, they're super rare. I don't know what the availability is like in, in the US, but in, the, in Europe, they're super rare. They, they're pretty rare here. There's maybe a handful of folks that have some breeding and ever get some. So I know three. Three yeah, people. Yeah, that's probably... Um, I'll put my two biggest pairs together this season. Um, so nice. we'll see what um, What else have we got? Um, oh, uh, Boiga dendrophilia dendrophilia. Mm -hmm. uh, Langehar madagascarensis. Beautiful. Uh, I've got two nice breeding groups of those. Oh, I love those. My big thing that I want to breed, because no one's done it in Europe. I know one chap in America has done it, and only one. Okay. But nobody in Europe's ever bred them. I mean, they come in gravid sometimes, but to actually sure. breed, no one's ever done that. Um, I have, uh, what else have we got? Oh, um, Madagascar cat snakes. Mm. Um, what else is next to that? Madagascar snakes. IJs, which I'm excited for this season. because There we not, go. <laughs> there we go. I've not done anything with uh, IJs before. This is my first um pair i've got and they're wild caught adults so quite nice excited. very nice uh what else do we have oh apodora uh put those together yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, scrubs, scrubs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um bad when you're forgetting things amazon tree bowers uh, lots of felsumas you don't want all the Felsima species, do you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can lump them all together. <laughs> okay. Grandis, Madagascarensis. Oh, shit. <laughs> Standing Eye, Cochi Eye. Oh, those are cool. They're really nice. They're, yeah. they're one of my favorites, really underrated. Yeah, we've got a couple of them in the shop right now. They're beautiful. They're, su I mean, they're super hard to get hold of in Europe. I don't know what they're like in the US, but I think out they're of not the, the, um, the Grandis sort of yeah so i think they're by far the nicest yeah yeah uh what else have we got we've got some little day geckos the um the williams eye um mm -hmm. uh, got some big african bullfrogs yes uh, lots of north american tiger salamanders and amazing oh, things yeah. Beautiful. i can't uh, keep those yeah nope because <laughs> they're like you or you just yeah. can't keep them, you just kill them. No, they're they, you have to have uh permits for those here in California. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. California uh, tiger salamander are uh yep. regulated pretty heavily. But yes, I, I would kill them as well because they need a cold, cold space. Yeah, it's it's hot, it's hot where I'm at. They're kept outdoors. Yeah. So I think what else I've got. I think that might be it. Oh no, Great. um Corns, I've got some corn, different various corns. Yeah. Spreadles. Uh, Spreadles. Rainbows. Oh, rainbows. Yeah, rainbow <laughs> bubbles. Rainbow bubbles. Yeah, there's a few bits and bobs. But it's all, a lot of it is going to be sold as soon as the European shows start again. And um, I have an absolute raft of species that i want to buy that are all not american nice. mainly king snakes and milk snakes and uh rock rattlesnakes hmm. mm. focus on cool. yeah what uh what locality rosie bow are you working with um 
These are, I don't have a specific locality in terms, I can tell you, it's the coastal favourite Bowers, but okay. um, which is my favourite. Annoyingly, and we've all done it, I used to have a, a big collection of rubber boas and rosy boas. Oh, nice. And when I got into venomous, I sold everything and just focused on venomous for a while. I used to have a lot of venomous. Um, and I really regret selling the rosy boas because in Europe, they're really hard to get. Interesting. Um, so are king snakes. King snakes, um, all but, except for the common ones like um, the Hondurans and things like that. Um, any, I, I used to have a, a nice group of uh, Zonata. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, um, the one at Scarlet King Snakes, which cannot get for love and money. The uh, Andean King Snakes, they're super rare over here. There's so many cool King Snakes. Um, I really want the integrates that Eric showed me. Uh, just fantastic. <laughs> but they're the Eastern Coastals, you call them over there, don't you? Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. Just stunning. I need those. Oh, Thayeri. Pyramelana, Pyramelana, I want some more of those. It's just tons <laughs> of them. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You, can't, you so, really can't run out of options in that that group at all. It's just, it's, I mean, I know they've just redone, well, recently redone the taxonomy. So now, mm -hmm. in real terms, there's only seven yeah. king snakes. But there's so many know, subdivisions of that. Doing, I mean, like, is it? Yeah. Um, I think there's something like 20 subspecies for some of them for the triangulum and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. Incredible. You're so spoiled. You just don't appreciate Eric. Yeah. Oh, Australia is so fucking wonderful. But, <laughs> but North America has got so many more species. And such a I know I know I moan at you every time I see you, Eric. I just yes. do that. <laughs> but if you look at the snakes you have, just the massive evolution of snakes that you have in the States, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, Absolutely. you've got evolution for so many Asian species. You have got the liar snakes and you've got the night snakes and you've got the shovel noses and you've got the rosy boas and rubber boas, and then you've got all the different rattlesnakes it's oh, yeah I want to go to australia <laughs> grass is well, always greener on the other <laughs> side yeah. right <laughs> I want to go everywhere yeah that's that is the trouble i want to go everywhere but yeah i've got um i've got three more places that i need to visit in europe then i've seen everything in europe every single species so i've got wow. five more so i know <laughs> it's taken me 10 years but um yeah that's i've got amazing. five more to photograph and then I'm just hitting the States like a $10. <laughs> <laughs> um, have, have you, uh, have you dipped into any of the, the Asian rat snakes, any of those over, over your keeping years, anything like um, No, yes and no. Um, in, um, Europe, we have, um, some populations of released, animals that are bred and are now really established. Oh, wow. So I went to photograph the Russian rat snakes mm. in and what a speed. They're just beasts, absolute <laughs> beasts. Um, if I wasn't going to go down a North American uh, uh, trend, I would consider mm. keeping the Russian rats because mm. they're almost like uh, Bolin and I, really. They're, you know, they're 
black with the really solid faces really like them they, they get quite big mm -hmm. um we've got populations of uh, cave rats in europe in belgium now which are doing really well a, a tropical species how they're surviving in a country that has the climate of belgium is beyond me but they're mm. becoming almost a problem oh shit. Um, mm. I'm trying to think what other rat snakes. No, I briefly had Jansen eye. Oh, those are nice. No, they're not. They're more <laughs> and hissy and didn't like me very much. So, sounds like sounds like my hog nose, hissy, and they don't yeah. like me very much. <laughs> so, um, uh, I love some hog nose. Unfortunately, yeah. in Europe, we can't. We can get Western hog noses, obviously, because of all the morphs and all that. Mm. Sort of thing. Uh, they're very easy to get hold of any of the other hognoses almost impossible to get hold of nothing wow. from madagascar um myself well i've got the langahar obviously mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, in the past i've kept all of the uh madagascar hognoses um okay so they are available over there yeah they come in as wild caught as yeah right got, um and yeah quite regularly i think all that's going to end i would suggest anyone that's into madagascar yeah now which yeah. is why i've got so many langar that's what um, i've been saying to anybody about poplins about anything that's that's you know available to come as an import if there's value to have import blood and it's not like a you know a cheap devastating sort of irresponsible sort of thing get what you can now because if you thought it was hard before it's harder now with covid it's brought a lot of you know extra attention to the subject matter so yeah anywhere in asia particularly but particularly madagascar yeah yeah grab you can um because yeah. they're not it's going to be i think it was going to go the way of tanzania mm -hmm. uh, yes again i used to have a lovely collection of uh etheris certifora the little horned bush vipers right I, I actually bred those which was nice but i thought ah i'll sell them i can get some more it's not a problem yeah and then overnight, Tanzania closed its borders, and a snake that was a hundred pounds is now two and a half thousand pounds overnight. And you know, wow. the availability, yeah. Wow. Did you ever uh, have any reproductive success with uh, the Leo Heterodon? No, I didn't. To be fair, it was um, I didn't give it the attention it deserved. I would say um, I was focusing heavily on the. Um, Asian Trimerosaurus. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I had a quite a decent collection of those. Those are um, beautiful. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't put any effort into breeding. The I just like them. Um, particularly the blondes yeah. were my favourite. I think sure. stunning snake. Yeah, yeah. Again, something I would consider again keeping, particularly now as I think they're going to get harder and harder to get hold of. Yeah. Uh, but you can't keep everything. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to what? <laughs> Two problems in the same sentence. Can't keep everything, and things are hard to get. Um, our houses are small. I live in an apartment. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, me too. This yeah. is all in an apartment. What are you talking about? Houses. <laughs> House prices are extortionate in the UK, like ridiculous. And for not a very big house. I mean, I live close to London. Sounds like California. Yeah, you know, Bay Area. Just, <laughs> one of those things. Should I, if I moved up north to Scotland or somewhere like that, yeah, for the price I've paid for my house, I could have acres of land around me in a six bedroom house. Sure. It's like how all these Bay Area people are moving to Texas. They can, you know, yeah. turn their apartment yeah. into a into a little mansion property. <laughs> so, uh, 
yeah, I'm, my, my fiance is very patient with me. You know, <laughs> not many women would let you have a building in the garden that is full of snakes, some of which are venomous, and the all the uh, stuff that goes with it, like the breeding mice. And the, well, once uh, they've had it in the house, they realize the benefit of having it not in the house, and then all <laughs> of a sudden, you've made them look like the superhero for coming up with this idea that you already had anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How dare you expose secrets? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Pro tip for anybody listening. No, I make you right, but um, I would. Uh, if I move again, uh, I will completely change how I do a snake building. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is the third time I've built a snake building from scratch, and every time you do it, I think you learn course. something. Of course. Uh, for me now, particularly with the venomous, I think space is better than having lots of snakes mm-hmm. um, more space to work with the snakes less racks or less fibs and things like that and i do think um keeping snakes from the same continent really makes a difference i mean uh, i would go into probably heating the room rather than the vivs if i did that i would then just have deep heat emitters rather than heaters in the vivs as well so many things i'd like to do so uh yeah i think north america the only things i will keep that aren't north american will be the apodora because i'm not getting rid of the apodora <laughs> smart man um, i've got i think my, one of mine is just over 13 feet and the other one's 13 and a half feet and i know everyone goes all oh, scrubs are so strong and intelligent Bullshit. Oh. <laughs> Dude, my, my Apodora is hands down like the smartest animal in the room. And I've got Kribos that like watch and study me. The hog knows up there, watch and study me. But this thing, I'll open the enclosure. And if he's looking at me, he's checking me out. He knows. And I can approach him like a monitor lizard under his head. And he knows exactly what's going on. And he tells me how he's feeling if he doesn't like, he doesn't like to be picked up a certain way. So I have to, you know, build the trust going underneath him. And, mm. and when he's out, he's observant, he's, he's holding on. And for like a year and a half old snake at four feet, something long, the dude is just built. He's lean and just, oh, he just holds on with little effort. He's just amazing. I love that snake. A lot of snakes, you know, herping around the world. I have never held anything, including things like Waltronesia, which is, you know, supposed to be a really tough snake and things like that, and retics and stuff in the wild and that. Mm-hmm. But I have never encountered a snake as strong as Apodora. Yeah. I mean, they eat scrubs. But, you right. know, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, my, my first experience with an Apodora was like six or seven years ago, maybe more than that. Um, down in Southern California during a, one of the reptile shows of Pomona and, and Todd Dyer uh, brought me over to, to check out his collection and show me some stuff. Cause I was very green then. So he's kind of taking me under his wing and, you know, we pulled a clutch. He was teaching me that stuff, showing the collection, teaching me a lot of the, the basics. And then he showed me some cool stuff that he had and he pulls out his big female Apodora who's deep in shed, but I'm not kidding. Like, that big around huge animal pulls her out throws her around my shoulder 
and most of her is like down and on the floor and then her head's kind of around and she just kind of casually does this thing where she just turns <laughs> and then I see the eye turn in her socket <laughs> and like the short tongue flicks and I was like yeah. holy <laughs> crap my it was like palpable how much was going on upstairs in that animal and just the weight and the density you know how boas, like a six-foot boa compared to a six-foot python of pretty much any species, the boa is heavier and denser? Yeah. yeah. Apodora are the exception to that rule. This thing around my shoulders, it was heavy because of the size and mass of it. But honestly, I could feel that this animal was barely using any muscle to hold on. And all it really needed to do was just kind of go, Queek! if it wanted to just like put me down. And the thing was so strong. And I could just, ah, oh, dude, it was... It was an encounter that I'll never forget for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, just incredible snakes. It's it's the one or both of them. They're the, the only snakes that I'm hesitant to deal with when I'm in the snake room on my own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't mind venomous mm-hmm. or even, you know, some of the, uh, the, the scrub or, you know, whatever. Um, old Sansidia was another species I've got. I forgot. Yeah, uh, there you go. Yeah, which are quite big. Um but yeah, it's only the those that I hesitate to deal with on my own. Yeah, uh, I've already told my my significant other Rachel that this species, although small now, will be big to the point where when I have two of them, or when they're big, even regardless of how many I have, it'll be something where I let her know when I'm working with them, like, hey, if you don't hear from me in ten minutes, come check on me. <laughs> you know? So because yeah, that's the that's the only snake that I want in my collection that uh that is capable of doing something like that. I you know, as much as I love berms and you know, maybe one day I'll get into scrubs, but I don't consider scrubs like too ma- you know, I wouldn't get into the the really massive. But I don't know. I, that being said, I, you know, my big rainbow bow almost put me out once. So <laughs> she's a big girl. So, yeah. I think the only uh, snake I've been intimidated by besides um, um, uh, Apodora would be uh, King Horn Eye, mm. uh, the wild one that Rob <laughs> rescued from the road. And it wasn't until you saw that head kind of like come back around (laughs) and it's like the size of your hand and you're like, Ooh, that would, yeah. Yeah. Eric. I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You do. Yeah. I'll have to Southern. I'll have to uh, uh, just have the Meraukees for now or Marukis or whatever. Now, is it correct that it should be King Horny? I would say King Horny. Yeah. 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 King okay. Horny. Okay. Oh, King Horny. You gotta love that. So okay, here's how here's how I've learned to correct myself mentally. It's like my and I and correct me if I'm wrong. When it's a single I at the end, it's pronounced E. And when it's two I's, it's E I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's it's difficult for for English speakers, and I just about count Americans as English speakers. Um it's the why <laughs> of the hard thing. So, yeah. do you know the Latin name for tree frogs? What's, What's that? Gen- tree frog genus. What? How would you pronounce the tree frog genus? Litoria, like the Not the um the North American ones and the European ones. I don't oh. want to say. It. Uh, uh, is it uh the hyper? Begins with H. Sudacris. 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 
No, no, no. The, the, the genus is H-Y-L-A. Oh, Hyla. Exactly. See, that's how an English speaker would say it, Hyla. Okay, okay. It's actually pronounced Hila. Hila. The Y is, is, is an E sound. Yeah. If you get a, a Y, it, it makes a different sound. But for us, we would say Hyla. Hmm. What about cobras? Uh, Naja. Again, the- that's how I would say it because I'm mm-hmm. an English speaker. But mm-hmm. it, should, it should really be Naya, shouldn't it? Naya. Okay, because that's how I've heard like Rom Whitaker refer to them as. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's difficult. I mean, Latin favors. I mean, most of my people that I go herping with in Europe are European. Okay. So brought up. And most Europeans, apart from the English, because we used to own the world, we just don't bother to learn any other languages. (laughs) (laughs) Most of our European friends speak about five languages. It's just normal because the European countries are all so close together and you can just hop across the borders. Sure. Right. Because Latin is obviously an Italian-based language, Mm. their pronunciation of Latin is fantastic and they mock me to the point that I cry myself to sleep most of the time when <laughs> I'm just in my English pronunciation of things. Well, the thing is Latin, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of the, the language of the scientific community. And it was the, one of the oldest written languages. Right. And that's why we're, that's kind of like the basis and the standard. So yeah, yeah I but think Americans are just, modern, the modern, American- I was going to say modern Italian has a basis in Latin. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Any European speakers, they, they, they speak Latin. Sure. They pronounce Latin really nicely. Okay. That makes sense. Because the American culture, they, you know, unless you elect to include that as part of your curriculum later on in like high school and stuff, you don't, that's just not part of it. It's just the same as like how the metric system is not used here, but it's used globally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Classic. We said yeah. screw everything. We're not learning anything new. We're Classic making a America. Burn. Your ruler isn't good enough. You we know like our numbers. You know, oh, you funny. got meters. Well, I got two feet, and I'm going to use them. <laughs> I remember as a, yeah, right. I remember as a kid them trying to initiate. I think I was in second grade, and they were trying to get America to adopt the metric system. Hmm. And I guess we're just too dumb. I don't know, <laughs> man. I wish we did because now in stubborn. grad school I got to convert everything. Yeah, it's all meters and Celsius. I guess it was hard at first, but like you know, it's just like anything. You learn it, and then it just becomes you know normal. Do you know the metric system though for firearms and stuff? Uh, yeah, millimeters and yeah, yeah. Millimeters we do it. And... Yeah, if, we, if we're going to shoot you, we we use Americans know how to talk in guns. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's interesting because there's an exoterra thermostat that it's a really simple basic one where you dial the dial on the back and that's in uh celsius instead of okay. fahrenheit so <laughs> it's interesting um so have you so you said this is going to be your first season attempting to breed uh harrisoni correct indeed yeah. Yeah. Harrisoni, Harrisoni, damn it! That's right. Uh, Crap! I blew it. I'm just gonna pour steaming hot coffee. (laughs) So Nipper, how did you do it? Just put it together and call it. Um, Believe it or not, I listened. There's a show you might have heard on the radio. (laughs) Uh, I listened to NPR. 
for my sins. Uh, <laughs> again, I know you go, oh, why well, no one wants to know? Every time you do one of your breeding ones, it is fantastic. Even if, I've, I mean, I'm, I've listened to NPR pretty much from the start, which is why I look like this. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and um, even though I've heard you do a breeding show so many times, I must have heard, I don't know, 10, 8 or 9, something like that. We've did nine of them, yeah. Yeah, you've done nine, yeah. Um, it's still, every time you do it, even if you, it's like a little bit of reformation of what you're doing. And, it, and yeah. it's evolved as well, because as, as you know, as you, you know, nine years of keeping, you're making mistakes and you're mm-hmm. correcting them. You're seeing what works, what doesn't work. So even the, the same format of a show will still have so much new information. And you're, you're talking to other people that are breeding the same sort of species so much information comes out you know i could listen to pretty much any podcast there's a couple that i can't bear but i would listen to pretty much any podcast you normally find something something you know, yeah i'll listen 100%. to a podcast on you know species that i have no intention of ever keeping or have a particular interest in them because it's still you know you might find something about keeping that you can relate to the species that you do keep but uh, in a long-winded answer for your question, uh, I listen to your show and basically all my stuff, and I'm sure you all do too, all my stuff, I light cycle. I really, really think food cycling is so important. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I speak to, I've spoken to Rob and Keith at Peak and played at length about this. I really do think that is super important. Yeah. Um, and temperature cycling as well. So, yeah. um Again, for all, all the species that you know, the non-hibernating um, species, that's that's what I do. So yeah, uh, as you know, I, I got them fairly recently, so I wasn't expecting anything um, this season because I haven't had time to settle in or anything like that. But I did um, call them for a bit, not as long as I would have liked to. I called them for a bit. I did food cycling for a bit, and I just thought oh, I'll put them together and just see what happens because I've got them. And yep. yeah, I walked in. Um, I think I've been we've been really lucky in the UK, or unlucky, depending on your point of view. Our weather has been unseasonably cold this year. Um, yeah. A lot of snow, which we don't normally get that much snow, but we've had a lot of snow, and we've also had a lot of weird one-day snow, the next day fourteen degrees type weather. Mm. So there's been a lot of cold fronts coming. It's been really odd, and I yeah. have noticed, particularly with the rattlesnakes. The day the cold front hits, the males are all over the females. Now, the temperature kind of drops significantly because they're in a building that is pretty much temperature controlled. So it must be something else. It must be an air pressure thing or something like that. Because, right. yeah, the temperatures will drop a little bit because, you know, the heating comes down at night. So there might be uh, a temp drop because the outside temperatures are cooler, but it won't be that significant. I can't, you know, it's an insulated building. So it must be a pressure thing, or I, I don't know. But I've definitely noticed that I get when these cold fronts come through, I see a lot more mating activity and a lot of sheds as well. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah, I think um, I. You know, I, so last night I was watching. Uh, there was some show. It was uh, it's called Wild Australia or something like that. And um, so they were talking about how um, you know how the weather is sort of like, you know, some years they'll have, you know, major drought and, you know, um, 
they were as actually was talking about kangaroos right and how during the drought that you know uh i guess they kick the one the the joey that's outside the pouch off of milk first then they kick the joey that's inside the pouch next and then you know uh the mother will just cut off milk altogether after that because she's hoping to survive so that she can breed again rather than have uh i guess the little joey that you know that little pink little joey <laughs> that climbs out looks like a pinky but anyway So it got me thinking, right? And I I just want to throw this thought out there and see what you think. I wonder if there's ever been a study done, you know, because we talk about pythons breeding uh, or just snakes in general, right? That they don't breed every year because those factors really play a part in whether or not they would produce again. And it's sort of like it's sort of like even stuff out. So you don't have an overabundance of, of one species over another, you know? So I'm thinking like, okay, so to keep the kangaroos in check, cause I imagine kangaroos are kind of like deer here on the East coast, right? They're all over the place. You have to call them. You have to, you have to, uh, I don't know if it's like, is that like that on the West coast deer all over the place, no, jumping everywhere. into cars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so you guys <laughs> understand, right? Um, so we have to actually go and call them. They have a season where you go and get, you know, take them out. So I'm wondering if this is like nature's way to sort of make sure that, you know, checks and balances are in place. I mean, you know, so like even if they wanted to breed every year, they're not going to because of the conditions. So I think a lot of times that we take for granted the outside weather and how it affects the animals that we're keeping when we really think that we did something wrong, but maybe the triggers that are outside are not necessarily get on the go. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Am I saying that right? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And, and those very same conditions might be affecting the snakes indirectly too, you know, depending on what that, uh, weather is doing on say the prey species in the area and whatnot, you know, food abundance right. is going to be impacted by that too, even if the snake isn't directly, um, you right. know, so for sure. Oh, Riley, you're muted. You're muted, Riley. It seems like it's uh it seems like it's a, a cycling around rain and the the hydration, yeah. you know, because that starts the grass, which feeds the bugs, which feeds the rodents, which you know, the whole food web sort of thing. It's all around water, and yeah. uh, and even if they're not experiencing the rain because they're in an insulated building, they're living under human care. They're feeling the pressure changes, like we were just talking about. And that's yeah. why I'm so curious what this new era of sporadic changing climate is going to do for species yeah. that are dependent on those kinds of cues for, for reproducing. Well, it's, you know? it's pushing seasons 100%. later and later, you know? Right. And then, you know, wet areas getting wetter, dry areas getting drier. It's just weird, unpredictable weather events. It's, it's, yeah. it's so interesting. You know, it doesn't necessarily change what a lot of mammals are doing for reproduction, but species like reptiles that are so keyed into that for their cycling you know it's like same with you know migrating animals what's going to happen yeah i think about um you know the whole i've been down a timber rattlesnake uh because we're trying to finish up this episode of uh student of the serpent Mm -hmm. but um you know they're coming out of their dens in um you know usually what it's around maybe like may you know once the temperature sort of gets to a certain but i'm wondering like is that going to throw them off if like because i think of all these crazy winter like this winter we're having a crazy winter where it's similar to what nippers having where it's you know just snow 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 and crazy temperatures uh super low um 
you know, I don't know. Does that, how is that going to affect them in the long term? If they're queued to come out, if the, you know, the temperature hits a certain thing and they're queued to come out, um, I don't know. Could affect them, I guess. For sure. Yeah. And also, conversely, with rising temperatures, I wonder how it affects rock rattlesnakes that are high elevation if the temperatures are going up. Right. I mean, yeah. it's a good thing for rock rattlesnakes because they'll, you know, they'll have longer. Uh, to feed and breed mm-hmm. and for the youngsters to uh, be above ground, I would think so. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. It's like in, in the Sierras, the uh, uh, pine beetles, you know, they're, they're supposed to freeze in the winter when it gets really cold and that kind of kept them at bay, but all the forests are getting decimated because it's not getting that cold and they're active year round, just taking down tree after tree after tree, you know, and the conventional wisdom is that, at least what I was taught as an environmental studies major was that creatures in these warming areas are going to move to higher elevations and higher uh, latitudes. But that's, you know, you could only go so far with that. You know, you can't squeeze everything up the, <laughs> up to the uh, the top of the mountain, if you will. Um, so we're having a problem in Europe. Um, we've got uh, lots of what we call um, rock lizards. And these are um, small lacertids. They're high altitude lizard species uh, for all the major mountain ranges in Europe. I've seen them all. Um, <laughs> and they're really, really rare. And you've literally, you know, t- to find them, you've got to climb mountains to see them photograph them, which is great. Um, but we're having a problem now with some of these species that are incredibly rare. I mean, you're talking, you know, some populations of these rock lizards are just on one mountain. That's the whole population for a particular species on one That's mountain. Crazy. And as it's because it's warming, and as you say, because species that aren't normally high altitude species can now go higher up. Right. They're in out. Uh, competed by wall lizards, which are quite robust, bigger lizards, lacertids that we get, which are normally lowland lizards. But mm. because they get higher up, they're out competing, they're taking all the prey, and the rock lizards are having to go higher and higher. Um, it's quite a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I see animals extinct. <laughs> There you and go. The, then there's the problem with species that are temperature sex dependent in their incubation. Yeah. If things are getting warmer, you're definitely going to have an off kilter balance of warmer produced eggs and offspring, therefore throwing off the gender, the gender yeah. ratios in a population. Yeah. It's a great point for sure. Yeah. It's crazy how much the weather is uh, tuned into, uh, you know, how species evolved uh, to survive in the environments they did, you know, yeah. I, and, and, you know, I guess when I messaged you guys last night, I was talking, oh, well, let's talk Bradley. Um, the reason is, is because I'm a, a couple of things came to mind in their environment, right? They're, they're taking during this thing. I'm watching something somewhere near uh, Uluru. Um, and um, they basically are showing this dry riverbed with those um, trees with the, you know, the, the bark is gone and it's white. And like, I'm thinking like something triggers in my head, like, okay, carpet pythons, which let for this discussion, let's throw them in there with, uh, Bradley and carpets together. Right. Right. They're sort of the same, uh, uh, you know, animal, if you will. Um, and they're, they're going in these trees that are along these water courses, just waiting for this water to come through so that, you know, all the animals come to drink water and, you know, then all of a sudden uh, they go hog wild with prey. Right. So um, 
that's to me why food cycling makes so much sense, you know, because there's nothing going on when there's no water there. Then all of a sudden at one p- part of the year, you know, you have all this water that's coming where it's, it's bringing in, you know, the birds, it's bringing in the, you know, the rodents, it's bringing in the, you know, uh, the kangaroos and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and on and on. But I don't know. Uh, just talking, just slightly off topic, but talking of extinction, um, what do we think of the Tasmanian tiger pictures? Ah, are they released? It's today, isn't it? I've seen, you know, uh, yeah. Of course, I haven't for seen me, them yet. Is, it's the evening now. That's right. So, All yeah. that I've heard is that the museum guy said they were patamelons, and I haven't seen the pictures yet. Uh, I did hear that too. Pictures have been released. They're not fantastic. It's not, you know, it's not a Tasmanian tiger doing that or anything. But. <laughs> uh, it's definitely food for thought. I heard there was a, a cub sighted and That's and two right. adults. Right. Yeah. The, the cub sighting is the is the is the best sighting. Um, they've released a uh, night vision photograph of it, and if you put that next to a photograph of a cub, it, it's just a head-on shot. So if you imagine its head's quite close to the camera, looking down the camera. But because of the eye shine, it's difficult to make out features. Mm-hmm. Um, you put that next to a picture of uh, a Tasmanian tiger, all the features match up. The ear size, the snout, position of the eyes, position of the ears and type of the ears. Which the Is it pandemelon or padimelon? I think it's padimelon. I think it's padimelon, yeah. Uh, also, if you superimpose a padimelon next to it, it doesn't fit. The ears, the head shape's wrong in the ears. So that's re- that, to me was the most definitive picture. There's also some daytime colour shots, but unfortunately it's walking away from the camera. Mm-hmm. But it is striped. It does carry its tail erect. The ears are in the correct position and they're the right size. It's not got padamelon ears. Uh, but the most interesting thing for me is it's got a hock. Now, there are not many animals have hocks, cats, dogs, and Tasmanian tigers. Hmm. it's definitely not a cat and it's definitely not a dog and you yeah. can clearly see it's got hocks it, it's pretty good it's you know it's not as good as we'd hoped but it's pretty mm-hmm. exciting you can see the color of them and it has got black stripe nice that's very cool so as as much as um i'm glad owen's not here because i can say <laughs> this without him yelling at me so this is always my argument to owen when it comes to the whole bigfoot thing right it's not necessarily the idea that it exists or doesn't exist or whatever but like the idea to say that 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 animals don't exist to me and you're looking at especially in australia i mean what's the population you know i mean to say that i I don't know it just seems like uh to me it would be naive to say that 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 if all of a sudden you saw one that 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 it's not I don't know. I would think that it's possible yeah. that there are uh, some. Still out of all those, alive. like, out of all those cryptid species, like, I feel like the Ilocene's the most likely, right? I mean, there's right. thousands of people that say they see them. You know. Yeah, I would suggest that the amount of sightings, coupled with the diversity of the people that are, it's not just you know Australian people that are just sat drinking in the in the jungle all day. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you guys, they don't do that? <laughs> There's such uh, a massive 
range of people and ages and people that are right. not into wildlife that have seen them consistently. Right. I mean, Eric, I don't know if you heard, but there's a snake in Australia called the Owen Pelly Python. You might be familiar with uh, that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you consider that wasn't known to science till was it 1970? Go on, you know, you've just done the 72, I think it was 72. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's a massive snake, you know, right. And that was like, I mean, you know, the, uh, the Okapi, um, the yeah. big anti. Yeah. Yep. You, yeah. So, okay. That was a recent discovery in real terms. I mean, yeah. that, when, that was that the 1960s, I think, wasn't it? Or something like that. They were, they weren't known to Western science and classified until 11, but even then it like didn't get, you know, there's still only a handful of institutions in the United States with them, you know. Yeah, it's actually incredible. You know, you yeah. that's a big animal. So Yeah, huge animal. Yeah. They're yeah, amazing, and, by the way. You know, <laughs> when when I think you talk about the Owen Pelly, right? You know, when yeah. you think about its habitat and like it's there I mean I can imagine that if you would look into those caves and those rocky outcrops and all, I would imagine that, you know, some of them go down into these big, huge open, uh, you know, open caves where they can just, you know, I, I, I just, I, I think about our idea, like, I guess like when people look at it, they just think, Oh, they're solid rock. But like, there's so much habitat in that rock and there's so many little cracks and crevices that, I mean, it would be impossible to to say what's in there or what's not, you know? I mean, you know, when me and Rob were talking about, when I was doing the Rough Scale show, we were talking about the idea of, is it possible that Owen Pelly even go up into the Kimberley? I mean, that's possible, right? I mean, they, you know, it's perfect habitat. Um, I don't know why they wouldn't be there. Like, what would stop them from going there? But because they're not, they haven't been found there. I mean, the place is so remote and so difficult to get to, you know. So how many people can really say that they've been there? And you know, so and then you take into consideration the actual habitat of the animal. I mean, that ha- animal is basically living in those rocks during the day and coming out at night to feed, and that's basically it, you know. So, yeah. and as you say, if you look at the such a low density of population and, and, and no population in many of those areas. Right. And even if you're going to do a scientific trip to monitor that with budgets, realistically, how long are you going to be out there for a month? Right. right. You yeah. be out there six months with camera right. trap looking for, you know, for everything. My big wish, if the thylacine is still alive, it means Duval's gecko might still be alive. Mm. <laughs> that there you because if yeah. they find those gecko i'll know they'll be for sale in europe within about two weeks and I'll do it. <laughs> if i can get a big uh, well the well, beautiful the beautiful thing about the scientific method is to say it can't exist is is a, a really hard thing to concretely you know say because you really don't know and until you can fully disprove it, like you said, go study every inch of that territory throughout the years and find nothing to, you know, validate it until that's done. You really can't rule it out. So I'm glad people are still, you know, looking into it. It's it's exciting. I still think there's a possibility that there's more carpet pythons on Papua New Guinea. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, 
we have this little section and to think that they're not like all the other Morelia or Somalia have sort of dispersed to the north and south sides. What would be different with them? What would, why would that be different? You know? Yeah. And Uh, most of what's been imported comes from the areas that are safe and easy to export from. Correct. And a lot of the other stuff that's untouched by exporters and Westerners is, you know, who knows what's over there. I would be I I would almost venture to say what if there's blackheads there, you know? Because Ooh. you look, you have Antaresia and you have Morelia and you have uh Liasis. All three uh you have uh species in those genus that are found at the top of Australia. And all mm. three of those are also found at the bottom of Papua New Guinea, right? right. So like why would that be different? You know, I don't know. Why Just, would Aspidites have not also Right. Crossed right. that area, that threshold. Right. Well, they're all part of the, what's the term? The Australo-Asian uh, expansion and evolution of all the snakes and reptiles down sure. that, that right. direction. Some, you know, some stopped along the way, but at some point in time, they all sort of came down that way. So at one point or another, historically, they did, you know, probably occupy that land before they settled wherever we know them to exist currently. For sure. Yeah. When the sea levels were lower and it was just one landmass, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's no reason why they wouldn't have slithered on up there <laughs> Yeah, if, if the uh, habitat was suitable. Mm-hmm. So I guess this conversation goes to this in a nutshell, to all the herpticulturists out there. We don't know shit. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. We're just so, winging it and writing we the think books we as know. we go along. We don't know. You yeah. Know. So much still um, left to be discovered. One of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, in relation to breeding with carpets and specifically because we brought up the pop winds is, Eric, you've, you've mentioned that you suspect uh, IJs and pop or pop winds don't need to uh, really probably be as cooled as much. So, like you could probably just food cycle them given where they're located without much of a, a winter drop. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking in context of Nipper only having his for a short while and only giving them a short cool down. I mean, I think it's highly possible you could still see reproductive success with them if the female just feels settled in, um, on that regard. They seem, they seem to be agreeable with minimal temperature fluctuations. I, I think if you're going to be able to breed a carpet python, you know, for lack of a better word, year round, right? At, at at different times of the year, or I think that would be the species. And no. I think I mean they're they're basically twelve hour the the the, the fluctuation in the the light uh, tonight doesn't really change that much, um, other than just precipitation. Really, is the main thing that changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think that you could possibly use that to your advantage and sort of tie it in with food cycling. And I bet you would be able to breed them at a different time of the year. Yeah. That would be my guess. Yeah. Do you, um, with your carpets, do you, you talk about precipitation, do you spray more heavily at different times? Do you spray at all? I don't. Um, I never had to. Um, I wonder if that would make a difference in combining that with the, you know, I, I, I mean, the better and better technology gets, right? Couldn't we, in theory, somehow tie something to the outside weather that it's triggered, that when it's raining outside, that somehow that precip- precipitation happens inside the enclosure? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I think yeah. you mentioned you're talking about Papua New Guinea, which has a reasonably stable climate, but it does have mm-hmm. a wet and a dry season. Mm-hmm. Right. Although the temperatures don't fluctuate massively, it does have a right. wet and a dry season. So yeah. I, would, I just wondered um, if, if, you know, it, it's another, you know, you say that there's lots of triggers, there's light, there's food, there's, you know, there's temperature. I wondered if precipitation was potentially another trigger. Mm-hmm. I know when oh. I read... Um, I've bred some rare uh, sandbowers before, the the uh, Eric's Johnny. The only way you can get them to breed is to keep them absolutely bone dry and then flood the enclosure. And it's that, because where they, where they come from in India, that's exactly what happens. It's absolutely bone dry. Then they have a monsoon season where everything is flooded and then it doesn't happen again for two years or something like that. That's the only way you can breed them. I just wondered if there was. Uh, yeah. I think uh, for me here on the East Coast, again, using a lot of like, that's why I like snowstorms for breeding carpets, right? Because of that, that change in um, uh, barometric pressure. And, um, you know, um, I don't know. I think that that <clears throat> that is more of a trigger for them than um, temperature. I don't think that temperature really matters too much with uh, poplin carpets, in my opinion. Yeah, I I do occasionally mist my poplins, especially if I see them going in the shed or in the winter here in Sacramento because it's really dry. I will actually mist them down. I mist my apodora down. I run a humidifier in this room pretty much constantly. So um, just because it gets so dry here, I don't have the I don't have the luxury of being in a, a humid environment. So um, I do I do feel like they uh, appreciate it more. Um, I've got juveniles in some tubs with uh, the suspended water bowls, and the females love soaking in those water bowls consistently. Um, they just like higher humidity for sure. There has to be something to that. Yeah, Go ahead, Dipper. Sorry. Do you get solid sheds from your apodora? Yes. Yes, you do. Yeah. I've noticed Apodora, it, you only need the humidity to be off a tiny bit, and they mm-hmm. have two little sheds. Mm-hmm. It's one of the sensitive snakes I've ever kept. Through yeah, they, they have a very small and thin scalation to them. And uh, I do think, yeah, as soon as you get just a touch too dry, it'd be so easy for them to have a, a snag or a tear and get a bad shed for sure. I've always yeah. kept up the humidity with, with mine. Yeah, the same for me. Speaking to Casper, who's one of the only people that's ever bred Apodora, and I know everybody goes on about, you know, Harmel Harris and all that sort of thing, but Apodora have only been bred a handful of times as well. Yeah. Um, he puts his success down to uh, temperature fluctuation, to cooling. Mm. Uh, he's done it. No, no, you know, there's only a couple of people in Europe have done it, but he's done it. So, uh, in- yeah, the one guy here in the States that I know, well, he produced the, the the ones that I have is um uh he he his was uh temperature as well. He went with temperature is his main the, the ones that were produced in the States, were they from captive bred animals? Mm. Or were they from wild animals? I think one was I think one was captive bred and the, the I can't remember which one was which. I have to look it up, but one was captive bred and one was wild caught. I would ver I would guess that it was the female that was wild caught because it seems like males are harder to find wild caught. Um I don't know why. I don't know why that would be. 
been caught did egg laying occur is it possible that she was gravid when she came in or is it no no he had no. had him for a few years yeah he had him for point. a while yeah. yeah that he that happened in 2016 if i'm not mistaken and you guys had him on so you guys yeah. did a show um it was either the end of 2016 or the beginning of 2017 that you had him on and i think the guy's name was was kevin something kevin, he's from, yeah he's from like maine or rhode island I want to say I thought he was from more of uh, the mid U.S., um, mm, but okay. I could be wrong. I thought he was like Ohio or mm-hmm. somewhere out there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, been I remember, a while. I made a mental note of that one because I've gone back and listened to it a few times. So yeah, hmm. I think we did a show with Casper too, talking about the yeah. breeding. App. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Um. I remember when he was breeding them, you know, like he'd be sending me pictures and I'm like, Oh my God, can't believe it. Wow. That's, that's cool. wild. Yeah. But yeah, it's weird how we like uh, gravitate towards one species that, you know, and the other ones we sort of like, don't give it the same focus. Like, you know, it's like this obsession with bull and I, or mm-hmm. is it, would it be bull and E? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but this obsession with them and trying to reproduce them. And I get it, you know, but like a species like Apodora is sort of like, uh, whatever, you know, few people seem to know about them outside of like some of the hardcore diehard, like, yeah, there's not a lot of info on them. Python. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's not there, I mean, yeah. that's fair. There really isn't a lot of information out there. You don't see a lot of publicity about them compared to other species. So I get that, but yeah, it's interesting how they've kind of been pushed aside a little bit. And to be honest, I don't know if there really should be uh, mass produced in, you know, following the retic berm or, sure. you, know, you know, big snake. Sure. Be- because that's a, that's a serious snake, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Agreed. So, Agreed. Big snakes are not for everyone. I think that and we can I all think- agree with that. Sure. Would you would you guys agree like Burmese seem to be like um, you know that 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 their level of intelligence seems to go here you know retics maybe here but then Abadora is sort of like you know what I mean uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Berms I know are retics, derpy. yeah I know retics get this uh, uh, sort of label that they're in, more intelligent than other pythons but I don't know man this th- that species is in a whole different ballpark in yeah, my Eric, opinion you've got apodora yeah. yes yes and riley you've got apodora yes yes uh, i've got apodora oh. Oh. lucas one of these <laughs> things I, don't gotten, look like the other <laughs> <laughs> i've gotten to uh, to work with them a bit we had one big female at the shop when i was working at the vivarium um so i've been in their vicinity, but they're not in my home. <laughs> yeah. So you handle them though? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So, so strong. You, they're so in, you, insanely strong. <laughs> right. Uh, For sure. Yeah. They're the best. And the eyes, like, like you were talking about Riley, there's just something to the eyes. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of snakes have the ability to move the eye a little bit in the socket, not a lot, but like, you know, some of the larger species seem to, and, and when you see an animal sizing you up and kind of looking at you and figuring you out and kind right. of just dialing you in, but not for any like malice or defensive behavior, they're just like looking at you and just like kind of figuring you out. 
it's hard to ignore that there's a lot more going on upstairs when they stop and think about doing something instead of like retics are kind of reactionary in my opinion they're very instinctually fine-tuned and they can be smart but you have to like flip them out of these modes and they just kind of default to things whereas in right. my experience an apodora's default is stop and assess first before mm. reacting and that to me that's a higher level of intelligence Absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, the retakes that I've worked with have not struck me as particularly intelligent. <laughs> uh, that's just, you know, that's yeah. just my opinion. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a knock on retakes, you know. No, it's they're just, beautiful. No, you know, it's just, and, and I'm just basing that off of completely, you know, anecdotal yeah. observation. So I could be wrong. You know, how do we know what the cognitive ability of a snake is they, they sure. sure as heck don't make it easy to figure it out. In and, there's, and there's always exceptions to the rule. Like, um, Cusco, Brian, he's got a bunch of retics that are just sweethearts and don't, don't have that initial reaction, but he's, he's worked with them and conditioned them over years to get them to be like that. And they have the great disposition for that. So I think there's always exceptions to the rule. You've got a bell right. curve of a population where, you know, the majority of them have that common food instinct reaction. Then there's a small population that are just inconquerably mean. And then there's a small population that are just sweethearts by nature. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I tend to talk about the false water cobras striking me as, as much more intelligent than, mm -hmm. and, and the blackheads more intelligent than the Womas. But maybe really all I'm queuing in on is that they're just more visually, you know, uh, uh, cued into things you know yeah maybe that's just the only factor that i'm that i'm noticing and yeah you know that that doesn't necessarily that's not the end-all be-all of intelligence that a species is is evolved to be more visual but mm -hmm. it's easier for me to pick up on as mm -hmm. a you know monkey staring at the snake <laughs> <laughs> i like that you said I have false water cobras. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to keep uncovering ones he's uh, forgotten. I what like happened? how last, last oh. week you said we're just monkeys that drive cars or something like that. <laughs> That's one from Nick. Uh, yeah, 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 Nick said that, and I can't, I can't unhear it. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the monkey driving the car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I think that's you know, getting back just circling back to carpets. I think in my opinion, the reason that you have so many people with different ways to keep carpets and 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 everybody's been successful and there are different ways of breeding them whether it's temperature, light, you know, uh humidity, food, all of the above, whatever. Um is because I think it's hard to judge carpets in a way because they're so adaptive. I would I would, I I keep equating them to North American rat snakes, right? No matter what kind of climate they're in, no matter where they're at, they use human habit, human, human encroachment for, to their advantage. Um, and they adapted to be able to live side by side with us, just, you know, annihilating the environment and it doesn't seem to affect them. Um, so I think because they're so adaptable, it's so difficult to like pinpoint what they really need, right. As opposed to, uh, what they need to survive, like what makes them like for me, a big eye open experience was going to Australia and feeling the humidity and really rethinking my idea of humidity when it comes to carpets. Right. If you saw me pre Australia, I was like, ah, carpets don't need humidity. And you know, all these, you know, that they, they shed fine. They do all these things fine. Just make sure that they have water and they'll be fine. Right. But 
after being in the environment, I kind of think like to me, I come back and, you know, I remember talking with uh, Chris Salemi about this and, and about humidity affecting them, respiratory infections in the winter, you see them. And like, to me, that humidity, because it's so, it dries out their, 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 their airways that I, it dries me out and I get, you know, get sick or get an infection or whatever. Um, so I would imagine that, uh, uh, maybe that's why they, you know, take Nido out of it and all that stuff, but like, you know, just this respiratory infection. So I came back from Australia and added humidity to my room. Um, and I, I have not knock on wood had a respiratory infection since. So. I remember when you came back and, and we had talked about that and you, you had a very profound reaction Whew, man, uh, it was with that. It was crazy humid. Like yeah, crazy I took, humid. I took that to heart and increased the size of water bowls where I could. And uh, now I, I try to keep my room between 60 and 70%, period. Like going from one environment to the next, you could actually feel the shift in humidity. I never felt that like before, you know. Um, and then when you go into scrub python territory, it's even off the charts even more. You know, I mean, like dense undercover, you know, mm. uh, so humid, you know, cool, not hot, right? cool, but humid. So mm. I don't know. Take that as you will. <laughs> so you came, when you came back from Australia, though, in terms of how you keep stuff is completely different. You know, 100%. You've, you've got away from keeping in racks you you know you you want to see your stuff you want to observe what they're doing because you've 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 seen that stuff in the wild it, you really, makes, it really have changed yeah yeah because i i don't know man I, I i that's why i believe that you cannot learn that to me that's where field herping is invaluable you know it's just it's you cannot get a better teacher class whatever than going into the environment finding the species and just taking some notes about what's going on. Like, you know, what's the temperature like? And you know, what's difficult um, for me is that, you know, I've only been to Australia twice. Right. And I've, I've, I've covered a pretty good, uh, you know, at least on the East coast, we haven't gone South. So like, but mm-hmm. like get a good feel for some different environments there. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's it's just so different than what I pictured in my head before I went mm. and how it changed the way I look at what they're what they need or what they're what they're looking for or how can I make them healthier? How can I have them live longer? How can I have them better fecundity? You know, all these things that sort of like we sort of like I, I think in my head, right? I'm sure you've heard this a million times. Like you have a you have a we've said it a million times on NPR too. Like when me and Owen are talking, oh yeah, this clutch, I got I got a couple slugs and you know, ah, it's just yeah, you know, maybe the male didn't get her quick enough or she's too hot at this point or whatever the case would be. And it's like, is that the reason? <laughs> is it? You know? Right. Just taking shots in the dark, I guess, but I don't know. Man, I went on a rant. Sorry, guys. No, that's great. <laughs> that 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 knowledge is invaluable. You know, yeah. it's I can't wait to uh, to get over there and and have that experience myself because, like, I completely know what you're saying, right? Like, as somebody that does work in the field a bit, and and 
I like herping and whatnot, you know, I feel like that really influences my thoughts about the species we have here, but I can't necessarily uh, transfer that over to the Australian stuff. Like I, I can, I can to an extent, but it's, you know, it's, it's a different continent. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but exactly what you're saying, you know, it makes so much sense that once you're just in that environment, all the little things on the periphery that you wouldn't necessarily consider, you know, it just becomes apparent. Um, and that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think any data in the field is going to help the hobby. I mean, you know, in the past people have gone, Oh, well, I've looked at the weather for, I don't know, Adelaide and it's this temperature. Well, that's great. But the snakes aren't out on a sidewalk or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not at the airport where that reading is being taken. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but you'll find the snakes when you're flipping rocks. So we need data for what the temperatures and the humidity are like under the rocks, under the logs, in the caves. Yeah. In the burrows. Exactly. I, we were uh, last week for, for lab, we were reading a paper about monitors being a, a uh, ecosystem engineer in Australia. And one of the really interesting uh, numbers that was stated in that paper was that 10 feet down in one of these burrows, it's 84 degrees. That's insane. Like yeah. that far down to still be that warm, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, if you're a snake and you're incubating a clutch down there, that's that's interesting to note. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, if you look at um, things like cave racers, the Ridley Eye and things like that, yeah, they're in a really humid, hot, tropical environment. But as soon as you go in the caves there, it's dropping down to 55 degrees and that's <laughs> right. their environment. Yeah, they might come from Cameroon, Thailand or whatever, Cameroon Highland, sorry, in Thailand or whatever, but it's not the outside temperatures we need to worry about. You know, their environment is inside the cave. What are the temperatures like inside the cave? Yeah, 100%. You know, when <clears throat> when I went to Chilago, when we were there, um, you know, there's these caves that you can sort of uh, go into, right? Um and, uh, you know, I've told this story before, but like to your point, it was like, I don't know, if you tempt the rock outside on just on a, on a rock and you tempt it, you're looking at 150 degrees on that rock, you know, and, you know, it, it's it's 100 degrees. It's dry. It's just hot. You know, the sun is just baking you and you go inside the cave. I have pictures of it. I'll send it to you guys afterwards. But you go inside the caves and like the temp gun says 74 degrees. And I, you know, to me, I, at that point, I wasn't even focused on reptiles. I was like, okay, so I'm sitting here looking at cave art, you know, from the Aboriginal people. And I'm like, okay, this is how they survived, you know? And then it's kind of like, it's kind of trippy when you're sitting there and you're like, you know, 10,000 years ago, there was a bunch of, of people sitting here surviving off this land, which like, I'm this little prissy baby that like, you know, I'm going out. I'm like, Oh my God, it's so hot. You know? And they're like, yeah, weak, you know, <laughs> smack. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you can see how the reptiles can use that to, uh, to their advantage, you know, and, and how they survive, you know. Why well, I need to get to North America and start temp gunning some habitat. <laughs> yes. What do you want me to temp gun? It's everything. <laughs> Just keep one around everywhere you go. I well, should have had one when I found that that uh the North Pacific rattler. Yeah. <laughs> well, just going yeah. through uh when I sent you that picture of the pine barrens, right? You know, the thing that that stood out to me, and I, I told Nipper this, but I, you know, I was like, I'm driving and I and I'm like, man. 
there's just there's timbers in there there's there's bull snakes there's you know all these you know all these different the eastern hognose and 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 milk snakes and rat snakes and all these species that are in there and they're just buried down under the ground and meanwhile there's a foot of snow on top of them which you would never equate the two with snakes and snow um but there you go new show snakes and snow snakes and snow geese (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah, it's just amazing that they that they are able to survive through that, you know. So yeah. we get so caught up on how we keep our animals and thinking of things in terms of a, a basking spot and a thermal gradient as far as the enclosure setup. But what most hobbyists and pet keepers that aren't, you know, just like geeking out on this stuff twenty four seven like we do, what they're not necessarily reading about or thinking about or learning about is ambient temperature and how important yeah. that is. The ambient in your snake room or house or you know paying attention to ambient because yeah there are some animals that use those basking spots and those hot rocks a lot of monitors a lot of uromastics lizards like that but not all reptiles are a basking species some of them don't even see daylight you know what i mean most of them live under dense canopies where very little sunlight comes through and they're you know being ectotherms they're relying on the overall climate so they're not necessarily you know, experiencing too much variation until they find those little burrows or hollowed logs. And that's where those microclimates within something comes in. And I just, I think about that so much and how it pertains to affecting the enclosure because yeah, I can throw a hot spot there, but when that turns off at night, it's going to drop to a certain level based on the ambient of the room. And it's just so overlooked at how important that is because you can really just shock animals in an unseasonably like weird pattern yeah mm-hmm. which is why going back to the, what we were talking about when we first started i think you I, I really do think we should go forward and try and keep species from the same continent mm-hmm. even yeah. down to, to the similar sort of area because then the mm-hmm. ambient temperature will be correct for everything right uh, right I'm super excited about getting um Cloudbury and Lepidus. Nice. Um, I've had them by now, but there's no show. The shows have all stopped for a year, but I would have had them by now. But part of the excitement of that is not just having the species. I cannot wait to build the vivs for them. Right. I want absolutely geek out on the construction, you know, and part of the construction is I want to get the lighting right. I want to get the UVA, UVB correct. I want to get, you know, that's I'm always banging on. I'm going away from ceramic heaters now. I'm, you know, I'm using deep heat emitters. I think it's mm-hmm. so much better. I'm using marine aquarium LED lights because I think the light, the natural light is better. We can really, you know, obviously if you've got a large collection, it's going to be difficult to do it for everything. But for certain species, and I think, as you said, yeah, some species, it doesn't matter because you know, 90% of their existence is in burrows underground. Um but for some species, particularly rattlesnakes, they are so light orientated. Mm-hmm, yes. So we can really get that feel. And I, I don't know if you use the deep heat emitters. Um, I use the Arcadia ones. But when you put your hand underneath it, it's like you're putting your hand out of the window and it's sunny. It feels mm-hmm. exactly the same. And I think that is, it's got to be so much better than the dry heat from the ceramic heaters that we've historically used. 
Sure. Um, so for things like rattlesnakes, which are active baskers, or the European uh, vipera, or stuff like that, which you know are out pretty much all day basking, it's, mm. it's got to be a fantastic way to keep them. I'm excited about building those vips. It's crazy how much you can learn, you know, from just you know, sort of uh, keeping like that. You know, I mean, you can observe things that you naturally you wouldn't be able to observe you know, in Iraq and, and sort of, you know, like why I sort of looked at things a little bit differently when I came back from Australia is because I wanted to keep watching them. I wanted to see if my snakes did what those snakes did. I wanted to see if they were, you know, I remember a while back on NPR, we talked about, you know, a a boreal, um, tendencies with carpets. Right. And I think in the early days, uh, of, um, of carpets, um, you, it was either two things. One, you gave a shelf, you know, the AP sort of, you know, Anthony Caponetto designed that cage with the shelf and the carpet would sort of sit on the shelf. And then you had the Condro style where it's just sort of a perch, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think carpets perch that way. I think they're more of the, I need a couple spots, sort of like a tree boa, right? I Amazon need, to, I need tree- to feel so here, yeah. here. You Amazon know, tree I boas need- do that. They're drapers. Drapers, yeah. Correct. <laughs> you yeah. know? And like just seeing that snake in the wild, the Darwin that we saw triggered that to me. And, you know, of course, Gavin, luckily we had him there with us and him telling us about, you know, the arboreal tendencies of those, like meaning that they never even touched the ground. So like, I don't know. To me, if, if that snake is doing that, it's hard to keep it in a rack where it can't do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, when you, when you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, now you've gone over to monitors, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now you're going to become monitor boy. Uh, <laughs> for you to Ooh, design. I like it. I'm a boy. <laughs> <Yes>. Monitor man. <laughs> you um, Yeah, the scope for you to really get to grips with the lighting and and, and the UV, and particularly again, you know, monitors. As, you know, as, as the Australian dwarf monitors—they're yeah. out in the lot. I think it'd be fantastic, yeah. and you can argue as much as you like. You are going to have a massive collection of Australian dwarf monitors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> look over there and watch them. Yeah, they're great. You know, um, and then when you have one, you know, the the justification of why you don't get them is uh, I don't want to deal with the bugs. But then when you got one eating bugs, you're like, eh, I can throw some Storphorus in here. I can, you know, a couple couple knobbies, you know, well, it won't matter, you know. And then next thing you know, you got Kimberly Rocks and, you know, <laughs> what the hell? After the Noctag episode, it was so hard not to just go out and buy a load of Noctales. They're so cheap over here. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're probably a quarter of the price they are in, wow. in the Wow. Um, yeah. But no, 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 no. the cheap ones for us are like two to three hundred bucks. Yeah. For the um, for the commoner species, you probably pick them up for around a hundred pounds. Um, oh, even the rarest, again, because everything's smuggled through Europe before it goes anywhere else. Um, yeah. Even the rarer species, you can get quite a lot of stuff here. Hmm. Uh oh, what's it say? 
So Ryan, Ryan wanted to ask your take on varied diets, including parts of prey. Um, the way I, the way I tend to do things. Um, and again, a lot of it was sparked from podcasts that I've heard years ago that got me thinking. Um, I really do try and feed quality foods because um, if you're buying rodents, um, they're not they're not frozen rodents. They don't have the best diet. Obviously, for the rodent producers, unless it's a small private company, if you're talking about a mass um, frozen food uh, producing company, they're going to be on cheap commercial diets. So I breed for the smaller stuff for the um, the bush vipers and stuff like that. They tend to prefer live, um, particularly like hopper mice and stuff like that. So I breed my own multi mammates. And I'm very careful with their diet. They get they eat better than I do. Um, nice. It, all my lizard feeders, and sadly, I've got a load of lizard feeders. Um, <laughs> so I buy in bulk house geckos. I'll buy them 100 house geckos at a time. Mm-hmm. And I'll keep the house geckos for a month or so before I'll that, – that particular cycle before I'll feed them. Essentially and like gut-loading them. 100%, yeah. So they will get um, – vitamin dusted crickets and roaches mm-hmm. and stuff like that even down to when i'm buying my live insect food i won't feed them straight away i will keep the insects for a while and i will make sure that they've had a proper diet trying to get as much plant-based material in them um which i collect from my garden so i know it's not had any pesticide sprayed on it or anything like that mm-hmm. just so that you know the D3 is getting broken down all the way through the chain and passed on, you know, as it goes on. Um, if I am feeding my bigger stuff, I tend, and I know I've been criticized for this in the past, but I, I've always done it. Um, I tend to feed my bigger stuff, wild caught stuff that um, either I've shot or has been shot locally. If I can, um, well, I live in the countryside now, so, you know, we get pheasants, we get partridges, that sort of thing. I feed a lot of pigeons, um, oh, nice. a lot of rabbits and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of adult quail. So mm-hmm. they should have had a decent diet um, prior to being killed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what I do. Um that's often you, that you're able to get those house geckos. Yeah. Like, are, are those bred for being feeders in the, in no, the they're UK? All cool. So okay. there is, you know, people go, oh, is there a different... They, yeah, they could transfer pathogens, but, you know, I haven't had a problem so far. I mean, it's the, the snakes I have that feed on lizards. I mean, it's their natural diet in the wild. Right. And to mm-hmm. be... You know, I don't know. I think it... It's almost natural for the snake to maybe have some parasites in it anyway. As no long one's as the snakes deworming the wild ones, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so as long as they're not, the snakes aren't stressed and they're yeah. kept correct correct temperatures and they've got a regular diet, they seem to thrive. You know, I'm not, touch wood, I've not had a problem so far, and I've been feeding live lizards for ages. Um, I use either anoles or house geckos. Now my snake building, because if any of you have worked with house geckos, you know you can't. You open a box and five of them will get out before you've done anything. <laughs> yes. I have a good colony of house geckos living in my snake building. <laughs> so, 
I just every so often, you know, all ranges and all sizes, which is nice if you've got hatchlings because there's hatchlings running around. I'll just pick one off the wall and I can. Check <laughs> it so, yeah, there's you, a resident uh, population at the yeah. shop I used to work at as well. Just yeah. running loose. Where, where I where find the eggs on top of the cages. <laughs> have you fed your Apodora uh, any snake prey? I haven't. Um, the reason I've made a deliberate decision not to do that, and I, you know, I have. Um, I've got, I've got friends with uh, snake feeders that, you know, so I, I can get snakes if I want to. The reason I haven't done that is because I knew I was aiming to pair them up and I'd rather that they weren't particularly scented on snakes or, mm -hmm. you know, had a particular liking for snakes, whether it will make any difference or not, but you know, I was nervous pairing them up. So um, sure. for that reason, that's why, you know, any of the Kings or anything like that, or the milks, Mm -hmm. Although they will eat snakes, um, mm -hmm. I won't feed them. I give gotcha. them all. My friend's got Kribos and stuff like that. Yeah, I've uh, I've fed snakes to anything that I have that is a known snake eater in the wild. Not in large quantities, just kind of every once in a while. It seems to be seasonal around hatchling season of any other species. I'll have one or two or, you know, or somebody, you know, gives me a frozen baby or something like that. And, uh, but I, I've had my Kribos eat snakes on several occasions and the Apodora, even while he was younger, uh, last year I had a baby Anteresia die after about a year of starving itself out. And, uh, and he ate that, you know, rather seamlessly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, from a dietary standpoint to me, I think the, anything we can do to, to replicate their wild diet, if it's a species that's known to have certain things are very, but at the same time, I've also had my Kribo male try and kill and eat my female. And is that because it was a little early in the season and she wasn't cycling? Or would he still have done that if he had never been fed snakes in his entire life? And over the seven years I've had him, he's definitely had his fair share of snakes. So hard to say how that variable played a role, but that is something to, you know, to think about for sure. And it's um, you think of how many people keep blackheads. Mm -hmm. What's the natural diet in the wild? It's it's probably more reptilian based than it is mammal based. Yeah, they're probably yeah, eating sand monitors. Same for walmas. Yeah. I mean, there's walma study where they're ninety percent reptile. I think walmas so, are actually more reptiles than blackheads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, so I think that's right. It can't can't be doing them any good. To just be on a completely mammal fatty, mm -hmm. lots of based diet. Yeah, that's. I mean, mine are are ninety percent quail for that reason. Uh, yeah, that is a thing. I, I would completely agree with you. The majority of my stuff, I try and feed more avian prey than anything else. I just think it's more sure. natural. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. I completely. Yeah. Um, I've got. Very rarely do I use rats anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No. There's uh there's different fat uh to calcium to protein ratios, different types of oils that you know have different effects on their skin and metabolism. Um, I think, yeah, unless it's a species that's known for just eating local wild rats or something, anything you can do to throw some variety in there is good. Like the blackheads at the shop, they'll occasionally get uh, bird prey or whole drumsticks or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And you guys are going to love uh, Dr. 
Zach on uh, the next right. episode. You're gonna yeah. Laugh. All the digestion. I already talk. love him. We already we <laughs> talked about a lot of this stuff. I'm cool. curious, right? We talked about varied diet, right? Uh-huh. So one of the questions that I asked, and I'm I'm curious what you guys think on this. Um, you know, when you see carpet pythons in the wild, and you see like you know, uh, it, it, you know, it's always this snake with this huge meal in mm. in it. Uh, more so than I see with other pythons besides, you know, your typical African rock eating a gazelle, you know, olive pythons eating, uh, you know, freshwater crocodiles and stuff like that. But like you're seeing this animal. So, you know, part of the discussion we had was like, you know, maybe they're more geared towards taking a couple large meals in the year rather than, you know, uh, eating, you know, I don't know, every couple of weeks or whatever and then i think about you know i'm sure you guys have all seen the video where steve Irwin goes to that farm and the mice have overrun it and they're running all over the place and he's just holding you know handfuls of mice and there's the carpet python like just nailing mouse after mouse <laughs> after mouse after mouse you know and i'm like okay so i i mean i know that they're opportunistic right uh-huh. but it just seems odd to me and maybe it's just because i focus on carpets i have all these different locality carpet you know, like files and files of locality pictures of carpets. And whenever they've eaten a meal, it's like, you know, they're just boom, this big, huge meal. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that that's what they're going after? Or I, I would suggest, obviously they're, they're opportunistic, but I would suggest, and I think we've all said it before, everything we keep is overfed. You know, we've all herbs. Yes. We all, we all filled herb. Have you ever seen a wild snake in the proportions of the ones that we keep in captivity? No, they're always only that uh, water python that Eric found. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scared me when I saw that. That thing was crazy. <laughs> I think that scared a lot of people and they sold their water pythons like, no, no, no. I don't know, man. There was a sign that said the snake eats the puppies. So watch your, your dogs. So I don't know. Maybe that snake is cashing in on the uh, you know, pets. poodles. But right. no, yeah. To your point. No, they're always half yes. starved, skinny looking things. Yeah. yeah. And I think it makes it a, a very valid point that I can't think of many snakes when I've actually seen the photograph snakes that were actually in the in, in in the process of eating something, the thing they were eating now that might be a little I don't know a dice snake or a a, a, a viper or something a little viper. The thing they was eating was always large compared to the size of the snake. And I think in captivity we don't do that. We tend to go, oh his head's that big, so I'll give him a mouse that's that big or something, you know. But I do think there's something, and I know um, Rob does this quite a lot i think yeah it, it sh- metabolically i think it might suit the snake better to feed it a couple of large meals than consistently feeding it small meals i know like with the scrubs and things like that i, I give them um adult quail now adult quail as you know adult quail is about that big mm-hmm. well, for, uh, my scrubs are about that round so that is a big bulge when when they have it but they seem to cope with it really really well um so i I think if we can replicate nature as much as possible i think that's that's the way forward and i do think you're right that a few large meals i think will be much more beneficial to the snake than a lot of small meals 
I mean, about pine snakes and things like that. I mean, you lot know more about pine snakes in the wild than I will ever know because I don't go out there and see them. I tend to well, feed my... It, I, I, I would think that, you know, with them being colubrids, that they're more of a... Uh, uh, you know, I think they they're geared more to eat more consistently, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, they have a much faster metabolism and things mm-hmm. with like pine snakes and bull snakes and gopher snakes. Instead of eating, uh, and even uh, like dry marcon, instead of eating one really big meal, uh, once in a while, they're specifically designed to to raid nests and plug up burrows of rodents or or you know get eggs or just whatever it is and smash in every eat everything in there like you ever seen a bull snake take a rodent smash it against the wall of its enclosure and then throw its coils around and it's pressing into things you know a lot of these snakes are designed to just gorge and and do that and then go out and hunt the the more active hunter species but things like like pythons and and carpets and a lot of that stuff i think they're just more ambush opportunistic and have the ability to take on a massive meal and have that sustain them for the unforeseeable future because nothing's guaranteed in some of those harsh climates they're found in. Right. Yeah. I I feel like it's another part of keeping where we, we should let the natural history of the animal in that particular species guide what we do, but Mm -hmm. it's tricky because finding out like an annual, uh, you know, feeding history for a particular animal, mm-hmm. that's a really hard study to, mm-hmm. to perform. You know, it's, yeah. it's very difficult to track an animal that long and not influence its behaviors, you know, just from being around and messing with it. You sure. know? Um, yeah. I like, I like the way Vin Russo has done that with some of his Island boas, the really small dwarf, you know, like Cocker key and some of those smaller boas, because he, somehow he and his team over the decades and, and folks he works with and colleagues have managed to uh, ascertain that these, some of these islands only experience bird migration for about 12 weeks out of the year. And then otherwise there's really not much there for predation for those animals. So they gorge during those, those 12 weeks of a year hmm. and then that's all they get. Um, and, and, you know, you think about that, that's pretty damn extreme. That's like, that's like going six months with nothing. And then you have a few, like three months of eating a ton. And then you have nine months of nothing after that. You know, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. When I think of colubrids, especially North American colubrids, I think of like our winter, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're not going to be eating from basically what, you know, like November until May. Yeah. So I would think that they're just like they're just trying to eat, 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 like constantly, just trying to get as many meals in the, in them as they can, mm-hmm. and um, you know, as opposed to like a python where they're from more the areas that they're from for the most part are more stable, so that you know they're able to maybe eat a meal, go a long time without eating another meal because they don't have to worry about you know some time some type of time frame to hibernate or. Sure. You know, and they can also be much more efficient with the the nutrients they're consuming. Their their metabolism does things over a spread amount of time, whereas colubrid metabolism is much more truncated and goes through it faster. So if they're eating a lot of little things and they're able to keep up that intake, that that rate of consumption, then they'll do fine. Whereas pythons can grab a large meal because it can take them a week or two to digest it, depending on how big it is they're really spending a lot of time and energy sequestering 
you know, a lot of the nutrients out of there. So one big meal based on how they digest is probably more efficient than if a carpet were to sit there, grab a tiny little sparrow or something, expel all that and, you know, energy in the, in their metabolic process and the digestion on something so small that it, it seems like it's probably more advantageous for them just based on how they digest. And I'm sure, yeah, you know, Dr. Loafman has tons of insight on that. Oh man, it was, uh, <laughs> I'm probably hooking this up episode to be more than it is. But when, when I learned something about snakes that I didn't know and like not, 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 you know, like what color, you know, what happens when you breed this to that and that, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's exciting too. Don't get me wrong. But when you find out how, I don't, I don't know for that lack of a better word, like efficient they are, like they're so efficient, <laughs> like, you know, like he's talking about what, and we sort of talked about this with like Python shutting down their system, you know, um, to where, so they don't have to allocate resources to sort of keep that go. I mean, that's just amazing. We can't shut our digestive system down because we got no food, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just, to me, they're just amazing animals. Yeah. Yeah, You, you, the Ohm, do you know Ohms? No. No. What's that? The, there's, there's a thing called an OLM. That's O L M. Uh huh. And it's a large blind cave salamander, completely aquatic. Okay. It's about a foot and a half long, bright pink, no eyes. And it lives in the cave systems in Slovenia. And I was lucky enough to go down another bucket list thing. I had a little swim with the Olms underground in the cave and it's really cool. Um, you go wow. a long way underground and it's very cold and then you Whoa. shouldn't protect it, but you strip off and you jump in and you have a little swim around with the Olms and they're great little things. But the Olms, because of where they come from, I mean, we're talking, you know, miles underground, there is no food. The, the, the only time they get fed is when there's flash floods and dead insects and things get washed in there. And they reckon an olm can go 50 years without feeding. Wow. Wow. Holy really? crap. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking these up right now, and they look like Boom. they look like blind axolotls with a truncated head. They almost have like a Solomon Island boa-shaped head with the gills, and they're like long, they, pink, blind. Wow. Those things look so foreign. That's crazy. You know, you've got Texas blind cave salamander, haven't you? which is quite cool. I'm such a salamander geek. Another reason. Oh, yeah. You know, you have got, I mean, we've got quite a few species of salamander in Europe, but you have got fantastic salamanders. I could do, you know, trips just for salamanders out there. Oh, yeah. I think think the Northeast and and up there has the best of it. We've got some in California with our California tigers and the newts and whatnot. The the giants. Yeah. Yeah. But then seeing all the the marbleds and the blotches and the spotteds and the arboreals and the slender, just everything. Yeah, they're fascinating. But your your Texas blind salamanders are very similar to the Olm, except the Olms are much bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a... There's debate at the moment whether it's a separate species or just a subspecies, but there's uh, the Parker eye, um, and they're the same as that, but they're bigger and they're black. Um, wow. And I was lucky enough to actually go and photograph those as well. Just That's incredible cool. to see, yeah. I, uh, I had a co-worker uh, back in Santa Barbara when I was at the zoo there 
she was fortunate enough to go travel over to Japan and, and tag oh, yeah. along on some field studies. And she got to see Japanese giants in the wild. She got to like, see uh, had the hybrids in a laboratory and while they were studying the hybrid vigor and how the hybrids are actually a huge problem. And so she got to go out and do night surveys in these creeks in Japan and see wild ones that they were tracking with radio telemetry and studying and see the breeding facility and how particular these water systems and enclosures have to be set up with underground shelters and caves for them and just... I mean, when you see something like that and and think about that, that exists in a waterway somewhere and that there's variations of them all over the world and every, pretty much every continent, you have some sort of unique, but similar animal that fills that niche that looks something like that. It's just, it's a whole nother level of just yeah. like bizarre yeah. appreciation. 100%. I mean, it's on my bucket list. It's another thing I need. I like swimming with things. I don't know why. Um, so. <laughs> I want to go and swim with manatees in Florida. 100%. Yep. I want to go and swim with giant salamanders in Japan. That's got to be amazing. Got to find some hellbenders here in the States too. That's right. Yeah. Start hellbenders. Yeah. <laughs> because it's one of those things. And I think we've talked about it maybe on air of here before. When you're a child and you're getting into herps, you have certain books mm-hmm. and each generation will have a different book that, that was out at the time. And I know I'm ancient, so I didn't have the internet when I was small. I don't know about you, Eric, but I didn't have – there was no – I did not. <laughs> no. So all, everything you take for granted in, oh, I'll just look that up like you just did then. Oh, look at Omar. Bang. <laughs> or I'll talk to somebody about this there in America. I'll just WhatsApp them or I'll get a message. There was none of that. We had to go to the library and get a book mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. That was my ritual every week. I think the internet was just coming along, but you couldn't like, you couldn't just Google stuff back then. Google wasn't a thing. So yeah, it was, it was libraries every week. So when you got these books, they you know, they become like a massive part of your life. And for me, and it's different for every generation and you will have a book and I will have a book and Eric will have a book. You probably don't even know what a book is, Lucas. You probably still. I knew it was coming. I knew that was coming. <laughs> um, but for me, the two massive iconic species that you'd have on the cover of the book, it's 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 the rattlesnake, and that's why I'm really into rattlesnakes. But it was also things like the fire salamander was a thing. Really want to, you know, this is an incredible thing. I need to see it in the wild, and the mud puppy was the other one. Oh yeah. You, you get a picture and you think this is a dinosaur. This is incredible. Yeah. And you read about, oh, they're in the rivers in America. And you think, wow, what must it be like to just walk around in these places in America and flip a rock and you've got a mud puppy underneath. Just incredible things. I think generally think that's why I'm so ridiculously obsessed with North American herbs is because most of the books from when I was small, when I was a child, focused mostly on North American herbs. Whereas probably Eric, yours probably focused most on Australian herbs, I would say. Yes. Well, for me, it was more pythons. I don't know, like pythons just in general. They they were like, uh, I don't know. They were just so exotic when I was a kid, you know. It was like, oh, yeah, you know, I had a rat snake, garter snake, this, that, king snake, all this stuff. And even when my dad had all the venomous stuff, I still was, for whatever reason, I was drawn to pythons. I don't. I always wonder that, like, why are some people uh, boa people, colubrid people, python people, you know, like, yeah, it all comes I think it back really down to their upbringing. 
I think I think it's I, you know the earliest remembrance I have of a snake was we went to the Natural History Museum. I was five years old. They pulled out a ball python. To me, the thing was gigantic. You know, um, <laughs> but you know, it's a, it's an adult ball python, probably five six feet, whatever. And um, they wanted somebody to put it around their neck, and you know, I just volunteered to do it. Went up, you know. Of course, my mom is with me, and she's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you're going to do this," you know. <laughs> and from then on, it was just, you know. So that's probably what it was, you know. Probably that. Yeah. I mean, I, I said to you, I think I said it on your show. I can remember the first herp I ever saw, um, and that was at the Natural History Museum in London, right? The real Natural History Museum, um, <laughs> the one with Charles Darwin. That that Natural History Museum, yeah. you know, and. Uh, <laughs> They and I was I must have been about five years old, and they brought us out on a little bowl with some stones in, and they lifted up a stone, and there was a fire salamander in there, and I've never seen anything so vibrant, and it was alive. It was it's like a you know, are you familiar with fire salamanders? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just an incredible species, and um, that was it. I was hooked at five years old, and I've now yeah. seen all but one subspecies of fire salamander in the wild and that's taken wow. 30 years to do sort of thing yeah yeah it's uh it's it's weird how those those things if yeah yeah it's weird how that affects you and how you sort of run with that for the rest of your life if you're you know i don't know for sure it's cool 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 oh <laughs> i remember my first uh <laughs> My first snake was a cow king. And then I remember my first really impressionable moment with reptiles was going and seeing a bunch of baby bearded dragons from us loaning out our female as kids and then scooping up a bunch of babies. And then over in the distance seeing uh, what I I didn't know at the time, but looking back was uh, probably one of the earlier albino berms uh, because that was in the nineties. So I just have that image etched in my brain and it's, so far different than what I keep and obsess over now. My first were a pair of uh, garter snakes from Mendocino County that we set up in like a half land, half water aquarium in the garage. And they were so cool. I loved it. And they both escaped because we didn't know what we were doing, but <laughs> yeah, you know, just, just so cool. But it is interesting, Eric, like you say, how the certain snakes, pythons, bows, colubrids, like something usually grips you more than others, right? Like I had to go through a bunch of colubrids and rosy boas and whatnot before I realized when I had my first Brettles python, like that's my, you know, that's my thing. Right. <laughs> um, right. And I, I don't know why, but it's, it's just, it's there for sure. Yeah. I think uh, the only other, so I remember that and I remember vividly as a kid, like when my dad first got rattlesnakes, the first one he got was he got a pair of Western diamondbacks. And like, um, you know, just to see, like, I guess for me growing up, you know, like nature series, uh, you know, I think of like wild America and stuff like that. And like, you're watching, obviously rattlesnakes were something that were so different than other snakes. So like, it seemed like all shows about snakes seemed to focus either on rattlesnakes or cobras, you know what I mean? And, um, I, but still to date, probably the most impressive snake, most intimidating snake that I've ever seen is an Eastern Diamondback. When my dad had an Eastern Diamondback, I mean, 
Ooh, that I was love, true. love Ooh. that species. I mean, yeah, I, so do I. I, I have a Holy fondness shit. for rattlesnakes. I've got a skeleton, a skull of an Eastern tattooed on me. And then I've got the eye of a Western here and nice hands down. Some of my, my most enjoyable times in zoos were working with that Eastern diamondback because she hated me and every, <laughs> everyone that interacted with her absolutely hated it. Yeah. Um, and it was just interesting to learn how her behaviors were seasonally. She laid a, a, a full thing of slugs one year, had never been with a male, 15 slugs and just, just kind of working with her and learning to respect her. But just that big impressive head, those black eye stripes, that big triangular nose shield. And that just, oh, they're just the most, impressive oh, impressive north american snake yeah. hands down i absolutely love those things yeah man. that's one of the episodes of of crocodile hunter too that i'll never forget was when steven mm. and terry were looking for the giant eastern diamondback and they find <sighs> their big ass one in the water dude you know, they're huge they're yeah. so big. Heads are like this big man yeah. they're like what the yeah. hell dude, <laughs> a, a five footer weighs like you know, 10 pounds or something like that. You, you lift them on a hook and your hook is bending. So you've got to <laughs> choke up. Like I, I specifically remember that this animal required me to choke up where the, the, the handle of my hook was up here and we're talking a 40 inch hook. So now all of a sudden I've taken it down to about 24 inches and this five foot animal. And I'm just like, God damn it. I need to go to the gym for you. And <laughs> The hooks are just like, whoo, just bowed. And oh yeah. man, it was just that snake commanded respect. Yeah, for man. sure. 100%. They're, they're amazing. They're beautiful. And and to think that like, I get why people might be afraid of venomous or, or not want to keep them or, or whatever, but to, to not respect an animal like that, or at least see the beauty in it and why they're there is just baffling to me. They're such amazing creatures. Yeah, I can't I was, imagine walking. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, just, I, was, I was fortunate enough. I was talking to, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I don't want to crucify it. Derek Dystra. Dykstra, Dy- Dykstra, I think. Is it Dykstra? So, um, I, I think so. Talk, I was talking to him, and uh, he very kindly today sent me the complete list of all North American rattlesnakes and subspecies. Oh, that's cool. So, nice. Uh, actual list to tick off nice eight nine things to tick if you're going to do all the subspecies <laughs> 89 it's about 40 species if you count the ones that just bleed into mexico mm-hmm. there's about 40 different species of rattlesnakes in the u.s and if you add the subspecies it's about 89 that's awesome we've got some work to do eric we've got some work to do <laughs> <laughs> trips yeah, to yeah, plan yeah. herps yeah. to see you yeah Somebody's just texting me about a trip to Utah in uh, May. Oh, are you kidding me? Do you know, <laughs> the, um, what is the feeling in the U.S. at the moment regarding? Do you think that you'll be open to travel? Or it's hard to say. Yeah, internationally. Uh, yeah. Oh, will I be able to get to America this year? Is my question. I think you have a better shot of getting into America than I have to get into Australia. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Australia being open this year at all. No. Um, but I, I would hope, I'm, I'm still hoping to get to America late September or something. Well, we're, don't forget, uh, we're doing that, uh, when is it, October? You're uh, doing the snake road in October, aren't you? 
Arizona. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, if I don't even care if I've got to do two weeks quarantine when I get back to the UK. <laughs> I, yeah. 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 We tried to push it out it, as far as we could, you know, just in case of that. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I've had, I'm like Wolverine. I'm indestructible now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's you, my, yeah. You, I think there's good hope for that. I mean, the, some of the big shows in California are still advertising that they're happening July and August. So, and California has been very like, nope, we're, we're closing, you know, everything. And, and now it seems to be like, you know, flights are happening to and from different spots. Like, it, you know, it seems to be opening up slowly, but surely. So I wouldn't be surprised if come this fall. Yeah. Folks that, that either have negative tests or the vaccine will be able to travel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping for you, you, Nipper. I'm hoping. Yeah. My fingers I, are crossed for you, bud. I've got everything crossed. I've had a bad pack for about a year and a half now. So, uh, <laughs> Sounds like my Australia bag. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Sorry, Riley. I know. I know uh, Matt Somerville posted up. Um, he has uh, He's a YouTube uh, shit. Now I'm drawing a blank on his channel. But um, anyway, he has this uh, nat- the natural herb keeper, right? Yeah, definitely check that out if you haven't checked that out. Anyway, he did his uh, trip to um, like just a, a Western Australia trip that he did, and you know, I, I don't know if you've seen some of his photography and what he's seen in the wild and all these different. I mean, he's seen like he's the one that took the picture of that crazy Flinders carpet, you know, that like yeah. orange and yeah. So, uh, but uh, anyway. Um, he had Western Australia and immediately I was like, Oh, what a bummer. That was us. We should have been there, man. And here we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. But we'll get there. Redemption. Next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You said he had a YouTube channel. Yeah. It's called uh, the natural herb keeper. You want to talk, you want to see some natural enclosures. Holy shit, man. He, this guy's not the next level, man. It's like, he's the one. Do you ever see the one where it has like the cracked soil? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? That enclosure yeah, with I, the I, think I, I must follow him on Instagram because yes. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Awesome guy. Awesome guy. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, it looks out. like I've got some videos to catch up on then. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was really nice. I don't think it'll happen this year, but next year I think you should all come over to Europe and we should do a little European road trip for Vipers. Oh, I would love that. Heck yeah. Yes. The Vipera uh, genus out there. Sounds good to me. NPR on the road. (laughs) I was supposed to go to Europe for the first time in 2020 for music stuff, and that didn't happen. So, hey, let's do it for snakes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if if we did it, we could do a a road trip in Spain and cover the Pyrenees into France. And even then, going from from France, going to Germany and Austria, you'd get so many cool vipers. I took French in high school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Perfect. We'll be just fine. Bonjour, I- je m'appelle Lucas. Show me the vipers. <laughs> <laughs> Seems yes. adequate. Uh, well, unless you guys have anything else you wanted to rattle on and bring up, um, we're we're at our two hour mark. I'm good. I'm good. Digging into this book. Here's a book I recommend. I'm always with the books. Island. Island. Islands and snakes. And snakes. All right. Get on your reading list, folks. You got homework to do. Yeah. Looks pretty good. Nice. Islands and snakes. 
Very cool. Nipper, thank you so much for joining nearly, us today. Nearly finished the Arizona book now. Oh, oh that's, impressive. That's a thick one. That is a book. I got I got to eat my Wheaties to pull that one off the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Wear a helmet so it doesn't come crash now. <laughs> Yeah. What happened to Eric? Uh, <laughs> legend to death by his own book. Uh, but yeah, well, thank cool. you again for for joining us, uh, Nipper. I'm not sure what time it is over there. It's probably the evening for you. Yeah, uh, it's just gone eight o'clock in the evening here. Okay, cool. Not too bad. So we're not keeping you up through the wee hours of the night. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blast. It's been great. Oh That's yeah, great. no, anytime. We're we're very grateful to, to have your wisdom and insight on here. So yeah. for sure, appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, great to see you all. Yeah, you too. You haven't you haven't heard nothing yet. Wait to hear the herp, the field herping podcast. It's coming Can't out. Wait. I'm working on it. It's all recorded. So just a matter of putting it together. Can't wait. So. Excellent. Did you yeah. want to uh, throw out any contact information or anything, Nipper? Um, if anybody wants to get hold of me, I'm always happy to talk about snakes, particularly North American ones. Uh, then get <laughs> me on facebook which is just nipper reed um and please follow me on instagram because i take some reasonably nice pictures and it would be nice if people uh, gave me some likes Beautiful. what's your uh username on instagram there it's nipper reed again so perfect All right. simple yeah. and easy simple and easy yeah awesome what about you lucas uh, you can find me uh, on all the thingies, uh, centralian exotics and www.centralianexotics.com nice Eric, you want to try and rattle off all the shows and everything? Yeah, I'm pretty good at it now, right? All right. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Podcast-wise, Murray Python Radio, there's Carpet uh, Cliff Notes, there is uh, Carpets and Coffee, as you're watching now, um, there is Student of the Serpent, um, and there is the Field Herping Podcast, and of course, there's Colubrid Corner, um, which an episode's coming out uh, actually today. Sweet. And then... Nice. Um, Tomorrow will be the Zach Loafman episode of NPR. Beautiful. And then uh, we got some cool stuff lined up. And hopefully, I'm going to say by early next week, we will have the first Field Herping podcast Ooh, up. Nice. As long as it's approved by Nipper, we are good to go. <laughs> final final edits. Yeah. There's Very a lot good. of editing in it. Yes. It's yeah. it's definitely different than um, I think. I think people will like it. I think. Can't wait. Yeah. I wish somebody made one that I could listen to, but since they didn't, (laughs) we have to make it. (laughs) (laughs) Glutton for punishment. Right. Yep. And then the last one is humans of herpeticulture. Got to get back on it. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, Lucas. School ruined me, but I I need to make time. I need to make time. Riley, do you want to be next? You want to come on? (laughs) Hey, whatever. You know where I'm at. You You can hit me up. Easy to find. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's just Riley's Reptiles on everything and Riley Jimison on YouTube, and that's about it. So Cool. All right. Well, we're going to get on out of here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Big thanks to Nipper for making time for us this evening uh, across the pond. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Pleasure enjoy the coffee. Still, uh, enjoy coffee. Enjoy your carpets. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you all next week. All right. Later, guys. Thanks. See you. See you. How do I hit?